We cover topics in as much depth as we can in 60 to 90 minutes on the Liturgist Podcast, but sometimes there's still a lot left on the table, things to unpack and explore. And to do that, we've been trying something new, online video workshops. These are a series of, you know, 15 to 45 minute videos and, you know, 8, 10, or 12 uh, videos long where we take a topic that we may have started to explore on the Liturgist podcast and then go into much more depth. We've just launched the first two such video courses. We have one on meditation. So if you're trying to learn to meditate or deepen your meditation practice, we've got an entire course about that. Or if you're looking at the Enneagram and how it applies to deconstruction and faith transitions and even spiritual formation, we've done an entire video course on that. And I mean, these things are deep. They exceeded my wildest expectations now that we've actually produced them. And I hope there's something you're going to really enjoy. So if you'd like to learn more about either of these video courses, simply go to shop.theliturgist.com. This is Jen Hatmaker, best-selling author, preacher, pastor, and all-around media personality. Science Mike and William Matthews sat down to interview her recently. Okay, so we're here today with uh, the one and only Jen Hatmaker. I'm really excited <laughs> to have you uh, be part of the Liturgist podcast with us. And we're talking yeah, thank you. about something that's really, I don't know, a big part of my life and I think a big part of a lot of our listeners, and that is the, the, the movement in Christianity known as evangelicalism. And I, I guess we'd mm-hmm. just like to start asking you, you know, a real basic, simple question. Jen, do you call or consider yourself an evangelical, mm. and why or why not? Well, let's just start there. Let's just start <laughs> with some low-hanging fruit. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Oh, we're glad you're here. <laughs> it's a great question, and I think it's an important conversation, one that I'm having with a lot of colleagues, one we're having with our own church, um, that I'm paying attention to pretty closely. It's funny, because I grew up pretty traditional. I grew up Southern Baptist. And so those labels, I, that was just part of the whole pill. You know, the whole pill went down without much consideration, and that was one of them. That was one of the components to it was just being called an evangelical, which I think, if I have to go back and mind my memory a bit, I think I probably felt proud of it once upon a time, mm. you know, just in a different day, <laughs> a different year. And so, you know, to have to examine that label as a grown-up, with faith has been kind of painful. It's come for me with a quite a deep sense of betrayal, particularly this last year in politics and the election and the era of Trump. I will raise my hand. I know this makes me naive. It clearly makes means that I have not been paying close enough attention, but I was one of those who was pretty stunned uh, by the almost carte blanche support of Trump by uh, self-identified evangelicals. So what does that even mean? I'm not sure. But, um, you know, that 81% really, that hurt. It really stung Mm. and um, has since kind of unmoored us, to be honest. We felt like something sort of untethered a bit. And we're still adrift 
to be honest, I, I have not called myself that in over a year. I have not called myself an evangelical. I'm very loath to be associated with that word right now. Uh, and, you know, I think we, we've got two streams of conversation here. We have what does it actually mean and what do people think it means? Mm. You know, I, I'm not sure those are the exact same conversations, but the truth is what people perceive evangelical to mean is what it means. That's what it means to them. That is the, that's what they're going to lump you in with, the sort of this, this entire bit of groupthink um, that doesn't just come with maybe what once was a bit of a more pure definition. Um, and so for me, I don't cherish that label at all. And I haven't identified myself with that. And I think the last person that asked me that question, I said that, no, I don't consider myself an evangelical. That's, that's interesting you mentioned this tension between kind of what people interpreted as meaning from outside the movement versus kind of what people who self-identify as evangelical might mean. Right. And that there's such, such a gap there that, that is growing. Uh, when I was a Southern Baptist, I understood being an evangelical meant, a, meant a, a few things, you know, a trust in God, that Christ was the Son of God and the the, the road to redemption for all people, that the Bible was the uh, accurate and authoritative source for understanding mm-hmm. uh, the teachings of Christ and God's will for humanity, and that the Bible taught us it was necessary and important to share that faith with others right. so that you know they could be reconciled with God as well. And so that's how I identified as an evangelical. Now, if I think about those four tenets in my current land of a wild heresy— you know, I, I don't know mm. that, that even those theological <laughs> right. points land especially strong with me personally, but I, I see mm. the way in which tenets like those can produce a faith that produces like genuine action in the world that's good. So mm. as much as mm-hmm. I, I was concerned with, even in a decade ago or more, I was concerned with the way we would at- attach handing out a track or a gospel presentation with a sure. disaster aid or... Uh, foreign right. aid, at least the mm-hmm. foreign aid was happening. But mm. then, then what people are seeing today in evangelicalism, as you as you shared, is a completely different set of attributes. People are associating the right. word evangelicalism with racism, with right. LGBTQ discrimination, uh, with right. cultural wars and political conquest. And and from That's your right. perspective, with growing up in the same tradition I did. How did we go from this this place of theological alignment to a, a political alignment we see today? Mm-hmm. I think it's been a slow leak, a slow bit of poisoning, if you will. Uh, you know, we can't just point to Trump and say that he erupted this division, you know, among this specific subset. Uh, that that would not be true, although he certainly has exposed it. I think it's really, it's come to clear light in the last calendar year, but um, it must have always been there. And, and, and for me, this has required a bit of self-examination and some, some hard truth telling to my own self, which was that uh, I realized with just greater clarity this year that I have for the most part, created a a bit of an echo chamber around myself. Uh, Most of my friends share my ideologies. They share my theology. Um, We are progressive in nature. We um, understand Jesus in the same ways. We understand what 
we, we consider a faithful life to look like on this earth at this moment in time in similar ways. And so if that's your primary source of input, and it was for me, there was a bit of shock. There was a bit of sticker shock um, to come out of that and realize that, oh, I am, I'm at, we're outliers. We're actually outliers. And um, this sort of sense of unification that I just assumed a lot of times in the words that I would say and the way that I would lead and things that I would write, just thinking, well, you know, we mostly all kind of think like this. I realize this is fundamentally not true. And so that's created a bit of loneliness um, for sure to realize that. I feel like uh, we're outliers in our because we're interesting. We sort of split two groups. We're we're not all here or all there. We don't. Uh, I I don't really have a super tidy label over me, and it just confounds people. It just drives them bananas. I mean, <laughs> my publishers, my people are like, "Where do we put you?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know how to help you here. Uh, <laughs> what do we label you with?" Uh, you know, it's really it's tricky um, because I see that. I don't. I would like to hear your opinion on this. This is what I see, and of course, I'm a I'm a female leader spiritual leader. And so that has its own brand, but I see sort of two paths here in terms of, for lack of a better word, resistance toward the, the label of evangelical and now what it means, which is, as you exactly explained, largely political in nature. I mean, we, you know, much ink has been spilt there, but it runs all the same fault lines as, you know, obviously Republican and homophobic and, you know, you know the deal. Um, so I see that there is one strand of spiritual leader, kind of, um, I would call my peers, who absolutely are opposed to what we're seeing and hearing. It offends their faith. It offends their conscious. Um, it offends their scriptures. Um, you know, it feels very, very far away from the ways of Jesus, but they feel all that privately and don't lead publicly. Mm. So there's that group, which is a big group. It's a huge group. It's almost everybody I know. I mean, and I really mean that it's almost every spiritual leader I know. Um, so we have a thousand private conversations. And then for those of us who have sort of built our spaces in in primarily an evangelical camp, which would be me, there's just a couple of us <laughs> out of that space who, who would not necessarily be traditionally labeled a progressive Christian or, you know, what a mainliner or, you know, some sort of uh, where that is a little bit more flexible. There's only a couple of us really who speak publicly. That's a different crowd. And so that sense of loneliness is heavy. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It makes me frustrated. It makes me really, really frustrated that we can feel so deeply personally offended by the nationalism and white supremacy and and homophobia just rampant in our culture and still stay silent publicly as leaders. I don't know what to make of it. You had quite an experience uh, as I you did. started to speak out on these issues. How much do you think how you were treated by people who had followed your work previously, supported you previously, or maybe people who didn't even know your work that well. And only you only got on their radar by getting on like the, the evangelical right. watch list. How much do you yep. think um, the fact that you're a woman played into their response mm -hmm. to you? Uh, I feel like it was a heavy factor. Most of the critics that even remain, you know, it's been over a year, but are men, they're white men, the majority of them. 
and they come out of a certain theological camp, the way they speak to me is incredibly misogynist. It's very, um, I'm hysterical. They demean me. They, they, they strip me of any credentials I've, I've earned. Um, and they call me a lady blogger, a, a girl who had a reality show and, you know, and, and I won't just lay that at the feet of men. Um, some of the women from that camp have been just, um, they've reduced me in the exact same ways. Hmm. Um, um, so gone are any of the titles they would assign to men. I'm a pastor. I'm an author of many, many books. We've led the church for 20 years, all of our adult life. We are church planters. We run a nonprofit. We have, you know, anything else that would have lent, lent credibility to a man is just erased um, from my docket. And, and I'm reduced to a, to a hysterical lady blogger. Hmm. And so that's been really telling um, very eye-opening to see um, just how far we actually haven't come in certain spaces, how far behind we still are. I'm now at the point where that just washes off me. I, that does not stick to me at all. I do not wear that in the slightest bit. Um, none of that can get in anymore. But it is really interesting to see that I think a man in my position would be treated with a bit more respect, I seem to be easier to dismiss. Mm. Jen, I'm really interested in everything you said, but one thing in particular stands out. I think there's so many people listening right now who grew up in the evangelical movement. Maybe they aren't public figures, but they've started to speak publicly with friends and family about their frustrations with racism and homophobia and these, these, associations with the movement they grew up with and, and, and the necessity to seek change. And maybe they have been treated the way you have, except not on Twitter at the dinner table or, Mm. or conversations with, with cherished friends and family. And you've said that in a lot of ways, these things don't uh, stick to you anymore. What, what process, what kind of journey did you go through to land at a place where these accusations and condemnations don't strike you the way they once did? Uh, it's a couple of things. It's a good question um, because you're right. You, you rightly separated this criticism and backlash into two categories. And one is easier to brush off, which is strangers on the internet. I mean, honestly, who cares, right? You don't know me. You don't, <laughs> I've never met you. I don't care what you think about me. I'm not interested in your coalition. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to earn your favor. I really honestly couldn't care less. So that doesn't hurt me because that is, that is fake outrage that lives on the internet, right? That is just, that's clickbait. I have been the subject of so much clickbait that I, it's lost all meaning to me. And so, um, so there's that category, which I find easier and easier to literally just shut the drawer on and, carry on with my life. Um, but closer in, it is harder. And, and that's the category to whom, um, you mentioned a lot of your listeners find themselves in, uh, where this is not some satirical site on the internet. It's not Babylon B it's your aunt Linda, 
right? Mm -hmm. It's your mom, it's your brother, um, it's your best friend. That that's harder. And that was harder for me too. It's still harder for me. So the relational tension that we've navigated close in is, is a completely different animal. So that, um, is more sincere. It's harder to navigate, requires a lot more work, but we've also seen a lot more fruit there too. And so it's worth the work. So for, for your listeners who think, I just, I can't, I can't even speak to my family. I I don't know how to manage my own relationships right now because we're so at odds. We're so at odds theologically or ideologically or politically or all of the above. I would say that that work largely is worth it um, when it's two people who love each other, who have years and years of history or mutual respect, who you're related maybe, or it's somebody for whom you are you have treasured in a hundred other ways that work is worth it. I I think we're going to have to really fight against this instinct that we're being handed right now, which is burn the whole thing down, right? Just one, all bad, all good. Those labels are really, really polarizing and I don't find them truthful. They, they lack nuance. They lack relational context. That's, it's, I think that's a dangerous position to take that if, if on a couple of these things, we are completely unaligned, then this is, this relationship is doomed. So, um, I do think there is some, some ground to be gained potentially, not always. Some, some relationships I think are so unhealthy. They're so toxic. And then of course, in my opinion, certain positions or beliefs or values are, if they are destructive to my neighbor, if they are harmful to my friends, I don't find that as an agree to disagree potential. Hmm. You know, that's not, well, you're racist, but I, we have, fun when we have beer on the porch. You know, I, there are some things that are worth fighting for, but I think there's other space that we continue to try to gain ground relationally with our people, um, across the wide spectrum of, of beliefs and values. But, um, I'm sorry. So back to your original question, how, what have I had to do in my life or what has had to happen so that a great deal of these critiques can just sort of roll off my back. And I will tell you that it's born in real life, which is this, our sense of Jesus, our understanding of, um, of his life and, and thus the word and how that has suggested that we live in a really meaningful way on this planet. Um, and and the people that that has since brought in. So that means, you know, we're throwing our lot in with our friends of color. We're throwing our lot in with our LGBTQ friends and neighbors and, and anybody really who's been marginalized in this current culture. Um, the fruit that that has borne in our life to use that old school Christian term It's so undeniable. It's been such a beautiful, beautiful new path in front of us. Um, Our life has felt so incredibly expansive with the inclusion of these friends and people and groups um, that there is really no way for us to make any, draw any other conclusion except for these are the ways of Christ. Like these are the, these things are giving birth to life and to joy and community and healing and health and the fruit speaks for itself. So that in and of itself is a, it's a confidence builder and it's a comfort. Um, And those alone have, I think, developed some chops in us to say, let the criticism come. The, the proof is kind of in the pudding right now.
So as you talk about having these types of conversations with family and friends, are there maybe some practical tips that you could maybe help listeners who say, okay, I sit at the dinner table and my Aunt Linda, you know, says racist things. (laughs) How do I, like, how do I uh, confront her? How do I, in love, or how do I maybe combat this narrative that is being believed Mm. by people in my family? Like, are there there any even phrases or, or ways of introducing that conversation that you've learned in your experience while having this maybe with people you know or or your tribe or your family it's like the worst moment right when aunt linda or your coworker george like drops this racial like <laughs> grenade in the conversation it's always george <laughs> what is wrong with that guy at the water cooler you know george. and you're just like ah here we go and i burn real hot i um i just i i have i know myself mm-hmm. and so george always flare. voted for obama <laughs> well george just presses my buttons like nobody's business yeah. and does aunt linda and so i uh, some of it has you kind of have to know yourself i'm not a i'm not a steady eddie right out of the gate um i just tend to be like hair on fire like fisticuffs right <laughs> and so um so for myself i know for sure that if i'm if if what i'm prioritizing to your point is a meaningful conversation if i want this to go somewhere besides just a dumpster fire, I am going to need to do a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to need to give myself a a minute. I need a minute. Hmm. uh, My, the first thing out of my mouth is rarely the good thing. And so sometimes that means I really want to talk to you about something you just said, or I really want to, I really want to have this conversation. I'm wondering if we can snag 30 minutes. Can let's grab coffee. So uh, for me, having a tiny bit of removal just from the moment of offense um, or even um, of just disagreement is helpful for me because I just get control of my own personal emotions. Um, And so uh, I like to separate, like if you're around the Thanksgiving dinner table, that's not necessarily the best moment. Like that's the moment to say, let's have that. I really want to have that conversation with you. Not now. But tomorrow. And then one thing that I've found helpful, and, and this is just a way, honestly, that I wish people would have treated me. And so I uh, am determined to extend it is to, to try with all my heart, have my, my brain say to myself, I'm going to think the best of this person going into this conversation. I'm going to not assume the absolute worst. I'm going to to remember that there are some really good qualities to this person. They are not an absolute garbage human being. So I'm going to go in with sort of a best case scenario, the way I'm imagining you, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so that puts a filter over my conversation in a way that I have found to be really useful and not in a way just to manage tension. That's yeah. not helpful. We're not here just to manage tension, but to move it into a productive space. And so between giving them the benefit of the doubt and then prioritizing being a good listener, at least for half the time, because um, my tendency is to reload while their mouth is moving. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've got my rebuttal, like take a breath, bro. I'm ready. You know, um, so is to really listen. What are they saying? What, what is their perspective? What are they trying to um, understand? What don't they understand? What's their experience? And I've just found that something in there can be common ground, something in there. We can both grab on with both hands and move to step two. Um, and so uh, it is possible to have a productive conversation that does not sacrifice advocacy, that doesn't sacrifice telling the truth, that does not sacrifice being a defense 
defender of what's good and right and pure, um, but that still manages to keep a conversation on the rails and hopefully will lead to a second one where it can even go deeper. Hmm. That's good. You're better than me. <laughs> I put it out right there on the dinner table. I said, you said what? Uh-uh. Listen, I am not saying I'm successful. You asked me for best practices. <laughs> I'm going to give myself like a 60% success rate on that. Oh. Absolute 40% fail. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I want to throw a bone to both of you as a consistent uh, non-reactive presence. I'm not a hot personality. Uh, yeah. If I do get angry, I tend to get icy cold. But I have such a non-reactive presence that the processing time it takes me to deal with the kind of statements we should be confronting in our culture often mean that by the time I'm ready to make a thoughtful contribution, the conversation has already veered pretty yeah. dramatically far <laughs> from that, that, that moment. Yeah. And uh, some studies have shown that contrary to what we're, we see happening in social media with a dramatic collapse in empathy, when people communicate verbally what they're feeling that matches the nonverbal signals their body is sending, that activates generally empathy in the brain of the person uh, who, who, who might need this teachable moment. So if you say, if you're, if you have this body reaction, your face flush, whatever, if you react hot and you can communicate with that, that offended me, that shocked me, that hurt my feelings, that made me angry mm. and then say why that actually tends to open people up and make them more receptive. If you mm. have a, an anger response and you attach that to a verbal attack or condemnation, then that activates mm. their amygdala and creates a hostile confrontation. So that's so interesting. Wow. But my point is for both of you being like more reactive people that actually can create more change than someone like me who maybe has done a little too much contemplative meditation <laughs> and responds mm. to comments like that in a very similar manner to a desk lamp or a chair. Yeah. Um. Okay, right. <laughs> right. You know what's funny about what you're saying is, of course, this could open up a whole new conversation. But um, as you have talked about at length, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And so I that, you know, my, I'm just a doer and I am a I'm a charge in and I am feet to the fire. But when I disintegrate, I'm an absolute nine. And so mm. I can tell when the the climate and the tone culturally has just pushed me beyond the brink of despair because I go ice cold, absolutely ice cold. I mean, I, I shrivel, I go quiet, I withdraw. And so I understand the instinct for sure. But it's true. Everything's such a hot take these days that literally if you need to give yourself 48 hours, it has passed. Mm -hmm. It has passed. And so that's exhausting. And I think uh, as as leaders, as thought leaders in, in any capacity, we really have to consider this right now uh, about how much outrage we can honestly handle and, and at what point the fatigue is going to overtake our effectiveness. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of our older leaders, particularly our older progressive leaders, I'm really listening to them right now. And I, in fact, I was just on the phone this week with Jim Wallace, and he said something that I'm like looking over at my notes right now. 
right now because I wrote it down as he said it. But he said, um, just talking about how and he, it, for him it's important to reclaim the evangelical label. I think that's something that he craves. Um, and we were we were talking in the context of that exact conversation. But he said, you know, strategy is good, but sustenance is going to be more important. And I think that hmm. uh, that for those of us who are prioritizing the long game here, you know, when we want to still be influencing and leading. 10 years from now that honestly we can't, we cannot respond every single time the media erupts. We just can't, it's not sustainable. I think we will, our souls are going to starve. I think our hope is going to be drained of its power. Um, and, and I'm afraid that we're going to sort of join this movement toward such polarization that we will no longer be even close enough to build any sort of meaningful bridge. We'll be too far apart. Mm. Um, and that's not what I want. That's really not what I want. I, I think the thing that I'm asking myself right now is what do I want here? Like, what do I want here? Because I think I, I can figure out a way to respond eloquently to everything that happens. I can do that if I will never, ever take my eyes off Twitter. You know, if I will never, yeah. ever have a moment's peace. Um, but what's my end game? What do I want? What do I really, what am I hoping to see? And that helps guide me a bit. That, that helps me stay a little bit focused with my eyes further down the road than just every little bump, which at this point in our culture is every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, who can keep up? Who can keep up? There's just a new thing to be shocked or horrified or embarrassed by literally every single day right now. It is just stunning in its just sheer volume. Um, and so I think rather, what? where do I hope that we'll be in a decade? Where? What kind of world am I? In a decade, all of my kids will be adults, every one of them. And so what sort of culture do I want to hand off to my kids in their young adulthood? And that helps. That helps sort of steer the ship a bit and figure out how to continue to lead with hope and with sort of a prophetic voice um, that builds people up instead of tearing everything down still. Um, I don't know how well any of us are doing, but, you know, we still got three years of this administration and I just... I don't, I don't quite know how we're going to um, sustain it at this pace. You know what, if anything, I want to uh, tell you that I appreciate the space that you have created. I think it's really important right now, really, really needed uh, where those of us who are shifting or finding ourselves on the outside of a faith that used to feel really safe, um, that used to feel really welcoming, that used to feel like home, um, have a place to go. It, it just matters. I, that sense of loneliness is kind of paralyzing. Uh, and on the flip side, finding community in, in sort of the outlier space, it is like a cold cup of water on a hot day. Um, not, almost nothing has brought me more joy and more healing um, than looking around after sorting through the debris of everything getting blown up in my life last year, trying to figure out what's left and finding people thriving and connecting and asking hard questions and nobody dies 
right? And this instinct to excommunicate is not present there, but rather uh, folks holding a lot of tension, um, saying, well, let's sit down over, you know, dinner and talk about it. And this very mature, sort of sober-minded approach to faith and truth and culture, it's just been life-giving for me. And so your podcast... Um, the way that you um, gather people around these sorts of ideas has been really important for me this year. I've listened to almost everyone. It's it's just really provided a lot of fuel for me as a leader. And so um, I, I thank you. I thank you for being who you are and for your courage and your intelligence. And um, there's a lot of us. I think there's a lot of us in your space that are um, in some ways coming back to faith or considering it and that's good work that's really really good work so thanks for having me on in your corner of the world i like your corner so um (laughs) jim thank you so much i mean obviously you have a great gift you're very talented i'm sure you're comfortable with that but uh we do a lot of interviews and very few of them will require so little editing to be airworthy. So, <laughs> and thanks for taking the time. I know you're super busy. The hat maker. Habadashery. Jen's Habadashery. <laughs> also known as the Empress. The Empress. The Hat Empress. <laughs> what do you think, Hillary? Of evangelicalism. What do I think? I think she's been through a lot. Yeah. And the desire to reclaim the label that she talked about seems noble, although I wonder what that actually means and if that's feasible and useful. Uh, when she was talking about you know, I don't even listen to that stuff anymore. I thought, wow, I'm so relieved. And I find that so hard to believe when the community that you self-identified with totally rejected you and devalued you and shamed you publicly. So I'm so, I feel pleased to hear that it's been healing that she can join a community of people and see that it was worth it in the end. But I can't imagine what it's like to carry that much hurt. Yeah. I know what it feels like to have a community that you love uh, and really valued um, give you over to Satan, <laughs> in essence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and that's what happens sometimes in these, you know, churches and movements where um, agreement is the goal. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think Jen has gone through a lot. And I, I read the article. I think it was political that did the article on her. That was really good. And they talked about, I mean, the, the nasty things people were saying to her children. Um, I mean, it was, there was a lot of vitriolic hate over her and her husband. Um, and uh, what was the thing she came out for affirming? Yeah, I think she turned her husband after, uh, doing some theological study and research really changed their views on, uh, same sex unions and became an affirming, uh, cause they were, pa- they're pastors. And so they, uh, moved into an affirming space for their church and, and where do they pastor? Texas. Uh, I'm not sure the exact town, but yeah, Texas. And it was, I don't know. I really value her struggle and what she's been through. And I also value her strength and confidence to keep moving forward and to keep like pressing on. And I know she's been doing this tour with Nicole Norderman. It's been blowing up. Like it's funny, even after she, uh, you know, had this whatever 
whatever it was. Controversy. <laughs> you and and you and Lisa Gunger are are no <laughs> strangers, strangers to that to that type of controversy. Um, you know, like her book sales have been doing really well. Her, uh, you know, they're doing this tour after the, uh, the, they were on another tour and it got canceled and they've been doing this tour on their own and they, they bet it on themselves and, and they're packing out, uh, venues. And I, I think there's, there is a shift happening where people, yeah, the, it's the same old story that happens in evangelicalism and fundamentalism. But now I think people are either choosing to see it differently or decide that that's a non-essential and I think her fans are are doing that, and her readers, and and so obviously, you know, you've experienced that too. So I'm glad that her work is being successful, but I think that even if it wasn't, I would say mm-hmm. that she did the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that we can't base our moral decisions on if the popular crowd or community is going to support our work after. Yeah. And so good for her for stepping out and doing the thing that she felt mattered Yeah. without any guarantee that it would be successful or productive or would help her work in any way. Absolutely. I don't think you step out and do LGBT ministry and think, or <laughs> somehow we're going to make sell more books now, <laughs> at least not to this, that same crowd. It just, it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. so you're right. It was, it was such a moral choice, I think. But there's a, a lot of people who don't say something because they're afraid it will hurt them. Yeah. Their brand, we don't hang up a shingle and we say, I'm not going to self-identify with this because it's really going to anger my publisher or my boss or my family or my ethical committee on my licensing board or whatever it is. Yeah. And so I think it's incredible that in spite of knowing it could have cost her, she did it because it felt right, which feels to me like a really healthy version of evangelicalism. Yeah. Do you have any, as a therapist, sort of blanket advice for people that are leaving that even, you know, they Maybe, I'm sure there's evangelicals listening to this program that are on the fence. Like, gosh, am I an evangelical? Should I be? Should I leave? And for people that make that decision of like, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not. I, I find too much destructive in this camp. I'm go. I'm moving out. Do you have any advice that would apply to lots of people at the same time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that maybe we can change the primary label from evangelical to human. Right. So moving our self identity away from the theological belief towards something that actually allows more people to be like us. So if you identify as evangelical, then by the nature of the word, your identity is exclusionary. But who is not human? And so who can you not find community with if you're human? So I think changing the identity and the label to human. And then finding another community of people who can help you feel like you belong. Because at the heart of psychological thriving, and we could even say neurological and neurobiological thriving, is a sense of safety and belonging and community. And if you are having to leave your group because it doesn't work for you anymore, then find a group that it does work with so that you don't feel like you have to be alone in your struggles and in in the challenges of renegotiating identity. That's good. My neurons and my biology needs lots of love. So that's coming at you. Thank you. Coming I know. At you. We've been loving on each other all day. <laughs> I also think that the things that you love about your faith, what community is probably one of them, but even Jesus mm. and even the scriptures and 
the Christian tradition, there are deeper and older streams that you can swim in uh, that aren't so exclusive. I mean, whether that's through Orthodox or Catholicism or mainline, there's lots of options if Jesus is really important to you. You can always go the mystic path, too. It's uh, my lane of choice. But uh, you can still, in fact, for me, I think that following Jesus actually seriously um, is a big part of what made me move on. It wasn't a rebellion. Because even when I still believed most of the doctrines and things, I see that I see Jesus saying things that are not what we're building our church out of. Like, yeah. why do we spend all this money on millions and millions and millions of dollars on amazing youth rooms and flat screen TVs and company vehicles and all the big, big things that we do. But then I went down to the homeless shelter and they couldn't even afford hamburgers. And I was like, like our, the church's one outreach to downtown homelessness. And it was like, what is, why are our priorities so different than Jesus's were? Yeah. And so just following the heart of your faith, like just, mm, just yeah. actually believe some of what you think is so true and beautiful at the heart of your faith. And just that alone will take you on a journey. Yeah, so pulling apart what it means to follow and be like Jesus from the cultural components of Christianity yes. and evangelicalism. Yes. So to add to what you're saying then, when you leave, figure out how you can retain the things that you yeah, really exactly. want, the things that have always been important to you, and maybe even the things that are important to you so much so that they're asking you or that you're they're rising up within you and calling you to leave the church. Mm-hmm. Find a way to live those things out and have them close to you in a community that can support you to do that and not throwing out who Jesus is when you walk away from the culture of Christianity or the culture of evangelicalism that has been painful or hurtful for you or for other people. Amen. Amen. I I instantly heard the rebuttal to what you said. That's mm-hmm. how the dogma is so strong in me. <laughs> I grew up with it. So when you said, you know, why do we have flat screen TVs and brand new youth centers, you know, and the homeless shelter down the streets starving? <laughs> I instantly thought, well, you know, brother, brother Michael, you know, the Bible says Jesus said the poor will always Please be among you. Brother Vishnu. Brother Vishnu. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Got him. Brother Vishnu, you know, the poor will always be among you. And, you know, like sometimes we have to pour our love, you know, the alabaster box. We just break in and it's an extravagant waste on Jesus. And we're doing this youth center for Jesus. And mm. like I, I instantly hear the pitch like in my head with, you know, this, you know, it's always Southern because I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always the Southern minister. But, um, you know, or the TV evangelist, you know, that's like this is what it what it looks like. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because I know a lot of people listening probably heard that same passage of scripture in their head because they've been so. Uh, can you give, can you give the rebuttal to your rebuttal? Like, what would you say <laughs> back to that? Yeah. Um, well, I think Jesus lived in a cultural time where, uh, truthfully, they lived in a uh, under Caesar in Rome, and they were slaves. Uh, excuse me, they weren't slaves; they were uh, occupied, and so they had no representation they had no appeal to government they were pretty much living at the whim of 
the political system that was happening. I think what we live in today is very different. We live in a representative democracy. You actually have a vote. vote what you say and do matters. Um, so, for instance, I think it was Slate just came out with this big article that said if they counted up all the money in 2015 that churches don't have to pay because they're tax exempt in America, and it totaled to $75 billion a year. Excuse me, I think it was $71 billion a year. And then I started thinking about other articles that I read that said that we could actually end homelessness in America with, for $75 billion a year. Yeah, I mean, you could give everybody clean water on earth for like $10 billion. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there's, been a, there's a lot of talk on the conservative right about not being dependent on government. You shouldn't be dependent on government. Be dependent on the Lord. You know, like you shouldn't need food stamps and, you know, you should just depend on your community and the local church and, you know, and faith and God will, you know, provide the miracles and come to church and come to our prayer meeting <laughs> and we'll pray for, you know, like, and you'll get the breakthrough like that. That's a big, I think churches feel this, like we don't want, you shouldn't be dependent on the government. You should come to us. Um, and the church should take, at least in America, she's, Hillary's looking at me like I'm crazy. I, you guys are listening to a I'm podcast, so, so you can't see her face. Wow. But, um, you know, I see it all over social media and preachers and, and pastors, you know, mm. will sometimes make these really silly statements while forgetting that their churches are receiving mil- thousands, if not millions of dollars in tax breaks, uh, you know, and they're not paying a lot of bills that other companies that make profits would mm-hmm. make, you know, they're not paying yeah. that stuff and then have the audacity and the nerve to tell, you know, poor people not to receive handouts or receiving a handout is wrong or you shouldn't be dependent on the social safety net. And so I would say to anyone that has that scripture in their head, like the poor will always be among you. No, they don't have to always be among mm-hmm. you. And isn't that about bringing the kingdom of heaven here and now? Yeah. And isn't that our calling as people who, who desire to know and love and be loved by God Yeah, it's to bring down the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the big flat screen TVs and, you know, we're doing it for Jesus, the thought in my head was, which, G- who? Mm. That's not the Jesus that I know, that I love, that I believe in. And it made me think of the scripture when Jesus says to, is it to Peter? And he's like, who, do, or he says to the Pharisees, who do you say that I am? Wow. Like yeah. who, who, who is this Jesus that is being honored when the poor are starving down the street, but they're big flashy youth centers with TVs. I don't know that Jesus. Mm. Certainly not the Jesus I follow. Yeah. Amen. 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 The relationship to the Bible that's a that's like mm. that's that big idol that is real. If you just say the Bible is not God on Twitter, mm. which I probably have literally said that, and and people will respond like, but but the Bible says mm. God was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mucha. That. <laughs> That's Jesus, folks. Mm. The word is talking about Jesus, not the Bible. And the fact that, like, they're like, but the word is the Bible. So, mm-hmm. literally, they think, a lot of people think in the evangelical circles that the Bible is God. So, it's what, like a quadrinity, quadrinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Bible. 
And then, so I've, and you see people that are still pretty evangelical, like a Shane Claiborne or somebody, who really focuses on the red letters. You know, it's like, well, let's look, really look at what Jesus said and really pay the most attention to that. People are like, well, what, you're just going to ignore the rest of scriptures just with this lovey-dovey Jesus shit? And that's what in they that say. Voice. Yeah, in that in voice. That it's voice. always Southern. <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> He's got a potty mouth because every preacher behind closed doors has a, has a potty mouth or curses like a sailor. And everyone knows that, especially in the South. Go ahead. But you know what I mean? Like it's it's an idol. It's an honest to God idol in the theology of evangelicalism. Is the Scripture they have elevated it so high? Before I remember our preacher at a church I was working at. Telling us, like, why do we believe in Jesus? It's because the Bible tells us to. For the like Bible he, that's how he, tells he, me he literally, so. like, spelled it out. Like, we believe in Jesus because the Bible says. That is precisely backwards for historical Christianity. Yeah. So we're in a crisis of authority. That's what's also happening right now, too. On the right and the left in the Christian space. I think there's this interesting conversation happening right now about the Bible. Um, I think liberal academia has always kind of at least debunked some of the more literalist versions of or renderings of the text that I think contemporary Christianity loves to tout and embrace. But I do think, um, so you brought up Shane Claiborne's red letter revival, uh, or let's focus on the words of Jesus. I do think you have theologians who are taking a new fresh look at the text who really believe that the text should not be looked at as a flat reading, that each scripture does not uh, have carry the same weight as the next that the words of Jesus, for instance, Jesus telling uh, his disciples, I carry a greater word than John the Baptist, you know, well, the words of John the Baptist are scripture. So how do you measure, you know? And so Jesus seemed to even cherry pick himself in terms of, or even changing scriptures like Isaiah 61 spirit of the sovereign Lord, you know, in the Isaiah 61, it's the, the year of vengeance. Right. And then when Jesus quotes it, he says, it's the year of Jubilee or freedom for the captives. And so you, uh, Greg Boyd's done a big work called the crucifixion of the warrior God. Uh, he's done a, a big book on that where he basically argues the text needs to be reinterpreted, particularly old Testament violence needs to be reinterpreted through the hermeneutic of the cross. He calls it cruciform, cruciform hermeneutic. Uh, Brian Zahn has, has talked a lot about this as well in, in his book. He, he even has a chapter on hell in his latest book, uh, sinners in the hand of a loving God. Um, but he really hits that home about biblicism. Um, if you follow any of his work and books, he talks about, you know, the Bible's not the fourth member of the Trinity kind of thing. And so I do think there is this alternative subversive thing happening within theology and orthodoxy inside of even an evangelical framework where a lot of those guys would still call themselves evangelical Christian or maybe not use the label, but in practice are very similar, but are doing great theology to, uh, you know, even some of them using the work like Brian Zahn uses the work of Rene Girard to, you know, undercut the whole scapegoat mechanism thing that's happening within the text and, and the violence and the, yeah. the, the child sacrifice thing. Uh, so for people that do care about the text, you know, rather than simply saying either all of it's everything or none of it's nothing. Uh, I think there's some interesting work happening for a lot of those people who, uh, yeah, we're in a, we're in a theological revolution. And I think the question is, what is our authority? And I think the Bible matters, but it does not matter in the sense of holding it to the same level as God. 
I think that we can't read the Bible without understanding the anthropological, linguistic, and sociocultural history that influenced the interpretation of the text yep. that actually privileged certain narratives and left things out based on hermeneutic preference. Mm-hmm. What this comes back to, I think, is how do we hold a sense of something that's capital T truth while also understanding human influence and social constructivism. Yep. And it's really hard for us to hold both. How can we hold that the text was influenced by people and it's also the word of God? How can we believe that the things that we're reading today aren't actually what the original text meant, but still believe it's the word of God and that it's infallible. And we get into these tensions where our perspective, our post-positivist perspective about capital T truth and objectivity means that we have to neglect the way that the text has moved and formed and been shaped and shaped experiences and dialogues and privilege. And it's really hard to reconcile all those things at the same time. So people choose not to and choose to double down on probably a fundamentalism in order to feel safe and to object to anyone who disagrees. One of the functions of pathology is black and white thinking. In cognitive sciences, we see that if you create these false binaries, it's this or it's this, that's that's actually likely going to promote some sort of mental distress or a lack of well-being at some point in your life. And Mm. so it's really easy to say, I want to throw the text out or I'm going to privilege it as being objective and infallible. How do we do something in the middle and how do we sit in the gray with the text and wrestle with it ourselves and learn enough that we can, we can think critically for ourselves, but then also how can we have leaders and teachers who are helping us stay in the gray with things and admitting what we don't know or how the text that's in our hands in front of us actually is privileging certain versions of human experience over others. I think there's also just a simplicity and a lack of development that don't allow a lot of people to be able to think nuance like that. So think of like a child that maybe it's the rules of the house. We take our shoes off when we come in the front door. That's the rules. And whether a mom and dad are there or not, that child probably feels at a certain age and development like, no, that's the real, there's like an actual rule that really exists in the universe. It's a thing. It's like a, a real, and if they didn't do that, if mom and dad weren't there and they walked in, they're breaking the rule. There's, there's like something real that they're breaking at some point, like you get old enough and you develop enough, you say like, Oh, that's just mom and dad wanting us to not (laughs) wear our shoes in the house. Yeah. So that question, I always would try to get like, we had a band and we would travel and there was one particular guy that was a Calvinist. We would just debate all the time. It was good times. Um, <laughs> the question I can never get biblical literalists down to, I'm like, so why do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Whose authority allows you to make that decision? They're like, it just is. That's the Bible. And that's like, you can't get past this. But it's the rule. It's like, you are the one deciding. The authority is with you. You have to decide that the Bible and your interpretation of the Bible that you're receiving and assuming is true is the word of God. You are the authority. And they just, they can't see it. They it's can't. like that wall. It's just a cognitive wall. It's like, no, it's just the Bible is the word of God. Hmm. Um, Michael Gunger, I just need to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that the scripture is infallible? <laughs> 
Do you believe that it is inspired? Every single word. I need to know right now for your soul's sake. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. That's right, Sister Hillary. That's right, Sister Hillary. Yes. B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Come on, sing it. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Okay, that answers my question. That's all I needed to know. All right. I feel like the spirit of the Lord came in here in that moment and just brought you back to where you needed to be. Yes, yes. Convicted. <laughs> it's funny because when you ask the things now about me, I'm like, I mean, I I just see it all so differently. Mm. That yet, yes, they're the words of God, and so are the words that you're speaking to me right now. Yeah. It's all the words of God coming into the world, inspired. What he taught? Yes, everything is is. It is all I amness. It is all isness speaking and breathing glory. So yeah, Ooh. but not in a way that makes me as an evangelical higher than Stan as a Muslim, Stan the Muslim. You know yeah. Yeah. I mean? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great point though. I, you always, every time you go to the oneness argument, it's like, how can I like really argue against mm-hmm. that? <laughs> it's just a good, that's it's just a good, I know it's, it's just good though. It's in Awana. We had to do Bible verse memorization. And I went to the, finals in the province <laughs> and there was a debate about john three sixteen and which word they would accept as the official version mm. and that would determine which church awana would win the full title <laughs> but i remember my mom made up competition. These, i know like, right oh my god yeah. it was like it was on it was like bring it on right it was, it was like oh where god, do you think they got the, the idea for bring it on <laughs> That's where they got the idea. But we, we had to memorize the Bible Bible books. And so my mom so sweetly made up the songs so we could memorize oh, them. Oh, good idea. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Ta-da. Give me a Joshua. Exodus. Oh, Isn't it Joshua? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Hey. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Skirt. Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, yeah. Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, this is getting real, Malachi. Real. <laughs> Do you still remember all of that? What's the pattern to the song? It's the song that we sang. It's like the, the wall that you hit. It's just the song, okay? It's just the way like, the song the is. Patterns. No, it's just it's the song. It's in the song. same key, I guess. That's in the ba-da-ba-da-ba. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba. Nah, okay. that catchy rhythm. <laughs> All right, so I'm not sure if it's Abraham's bosom quality or not, but it's got to at least make the demo real. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First Samuel, Second Samuel, First King, Second King, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, E. 
Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micaiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Peggy, Zechariah. Well, that's our show, everybody. Special thanks to our patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to Greg Nordeen for production help. Tyler Chester for a couple of piano pieces in there. Of course, to Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines. Your hosts have been Science Mike, William Matthews, Hillary McBride, and me, Michael Gunger. If you'd like to know more about The Liturgists, go to theliturgists.com. You can check out our video series, get links to our Patreon there, find out about the events that may be coming up in the future and all sorts of other great stuff. So much love to all of you. Thanks for listening.